following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 6th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the renaming of the Washington NFL team, which appears imminent, as well as the potential for the Cleveland Indians to no longer be the Cleveland Indians. We'll also discuss all the athletes who are opting out of playing as the nation's various sports leagues slowly crank back up. And we'll be joined by the newest analyst on ESPN's NFL Live, the living legend, Mina Kimes. This is the point in the show in which I remind you to listen to Slow Burn Season 4, Episode 4 of our season on David Duke is out on Wednesday. This is also the point where I welcome in my neighbor in the not-yet-estate of Washington, D.C., It is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. I'm announcing my candidacy for the Senate when D.C. becomes a state right here, right now. I'm not going to say you have my vote. I need to hear the different platforms, but you'll start with a healthy lead. I think so. With us from Palo Alto, California, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, the great Joel Anderson. Um, And Joel, just so you know, when you said the words Aaron Brooks on last week's show, my elbow started tingling. (laughs) <laughs> oh man and you know it's funny too because they're like three famous Aaron Brooks's too you know like so there's Aaron Brooks the little point guard that played out of Oregon and like kind of found around the NBA for a little bit and I feel like there's another Aaron Brooks that I may just be making up because <laughs> I can't think of another one but you just got kind of stuck in the middle of that sentence and yeah I just kind of got up yourself. in the air and didn't know what to do with it and just took the travel call But yeah, those were the much darker days for your Saints, Josh. Not dark at all. Aaron Brooks led them to their first ever playoff victory. And we will always love him for that. Really? At least I will. That's what Aaron Brooks did? Seriously? That's what he did. And uh, nobody will ever be able to take that away from him. (laughs) (laughs) Take down the Benson statue, put one up to Aaron Brooks. There you go. I was told that uh, I neglected to mention last week in my afterball that the statue of the Saints owner, there is one. And should come down. Put up one of George Benson. <laughs> Wasn't the note that you got, Stefan, that there's a statue of Steve Gleason blocking the punt? Yeah. So it filled both two of the categories in my afterball. One, awful people who don't deserve statues in sports. And two, action statues as the only good statues. Mm. Here, here. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. In 1933, George Preston Marshall renamed his Boston football team from the Braves and hired William Lone Star Dietz as coach. Dietz signed two Native American players, but the Washington Evening Examiner reported that wasn't enough for Marshall. Before a game against the Bears, Marshall dashed down to the nearest store selling theatrical supplies. The paper reported that the players were the reddest crowd of Indians you ever saw this side of the Sioux Reservation. The boys had doused their faces with a generous application of grease paint and were gorgeous in their coppery skins. 
I tell this story as a reminder of how retrospectively and often contemporaneously icky this NFL franchise has been. Dietz wasn't Native American at all, but spent his life passing as one. The team for decades claimed it was named to honor Dietz, but news accounts at the time show that Marshall changed the name to avoid confusion with the National League baseball team in town. Marshall, as we know, was a segregationist who refused for decades to sign black players. And finally, through his 21-year ownership, long after appropriating Native American imagery was considered harmless, Dan Snyder doubled and tripled down on the mythology and lies about respect and heritage in the team's name and history. At long last, the word Redskin as the name of a professional sports team appears to be dead. Team sponsor FedEx started it with a statement last week. Nike and Pepsi followed. Roger Goodell came aboard. Even the team's new head coach, Ron Rivera, was given permission to say that it would be awesome if a new name was in place before the season. Josh, this can still go sideways. Snyder could fight back or stall or try to rename the team something native adjacent like the Warriors. But for now, I am enjoying this moment of justice and also schadenfreude. What about you? The main thing that comes to mind for me, and I don't in any way mean to minimize the decades and decades worth of hard work by Native activists who've been pushing for this, um, when I say the following, which is, this was really easy. Like all they, And now they're saying, oh, we can come up with a new name before the 2020 season even starts. Like FedEx says they don't support the name and they should change it. And, you know, now they're going to change it. They could have done this last year, the year before, the year before that, the year before that, all the way back into the 1930s, they could have made this decision. And for, you know, ever since Dan Snyder took over the team and, and before that, but let's focus on Snyder for a second, just the level of obfuscation, of lying about um, the origins of the name, of claims about how you know it would be throwing away tradition of claims about how it wouldn't be possible, um, it would be too difficult to change it. It's just all bullshit. None of it was ever true. Um, and uh, you know the the other thing that occurs to me is there are all these conversations going around constantly now about okay, this person um, supported the Iraq War, so should we pay any attention to what they? are saying now? Should we like let them kind of tell us about um, what, you know, what, what's going on in our world today? Oh, you know, this, this person supported Donald Trump, but now they think Trump is bad. Should we like welcome them into the tent or should we reject them? I, I think the analogy here is that Dan Snyder is John Bolton. Like when it mattered, when there's an opportunity to do the right thing, he didn't do it. And he should get no credit for doing it now, um, when the time is long since passed for this to have happened. Um, he missed his moment. It's obviously a good thing that this is happening, but let's um, give credit to people who deserve to get credit, and let's not let this change what Snyder's legacy is. And, you know, let's not forget how long this name was allowed to stay in place. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, about what Dan Snyder's legacy might be if he changed the name or if he didn't, and you know whether or not he might go down, you know, along the lines of George Preston Marshall. And I think what you just said there, Josh, is why I thought that he might never change it is because a 
He said that he would never change it seven years ago. But B, he really had nothing to gain by changing it, right? Because clearly there are some financial incentives to changing the name and just like making business easier for himself. But he was so dedicated and so dug in on this name that I thought, well, there's no reason for him to change because he's not going to even really get credit for changing it under these circumstances. Not from us, at least. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I don't think there's anybody out there that's really, I, in all the contemporaneous media accounts that we've read this week, I haven't seen anybody like praise Dan Snyder for having a change of heart or yeah. reconsidering this issue at all. So I don't think it's going to change anything about his legacy or the narrative about this or anything, right? No, God, no. Um, I mean, especially when you think about how crassly and dismissively and disrespectfully that Snyder treated native groups that protested this name since the 1990s. But as soon as, as soon as sponsors complained, as soon as one of his minority partners, FedEx, the, the chairman of FedEx, complained, that was it. That was enough. You know what is driving Do you actually this. know that that was the instigating event or do, was it? Well, we don't. We haven't seen the TikTok yet, but certainly the first public statement was by FedEx issuing that one sentence saying that, um, that they had asked the team to change the name. That was the first public kind of break in the wall. Yeah, so we don't know what led up to this, and I am eager to read the Washington Post's 7,000-word story about this when it is finally put together, because you know that Snyder went down kicking and screaming here. Yeah, and I also think about this, um, because I actually don't think of this as easy, Josh, because like, I agreed with you at one point, and I'll tell you why I disagreed with you, right? So... The reason that I disagree that it's been easy, because if it was easy, it would have already happened. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't know what about this moment. And that's something we, we've talked about with George Floyd in the national uprisings now. Like, what is different now? Why, you know, why is everybody sort of coming to this? Uh, we're having this moment where we're all like realizing, oh, maybe we need to reconsider, you know, people's feelings when it comes to systemic racism and discrimination and just, you know, blatantly offensive iconography uh, that we, you know, that we have here in America. And the reason that it's not easy, and it's because it's something that is still a priority within, like, the American system is that we prioritize the sensibilities of angry white people over and over again, from mascots to kneeling protest to the continued soft ban of Colin Kaepernick, right? Like, there's still this belief that angry white people are the people who must be deferred to at all turns. Because it doesn't even make sense. Like, I refuse to believe that people are this attached to mascot names. I live in Palo Alto. The school right up the street is Stanford. They're known as the Cardinal. I did not know that many years ago they were known as the Stanford Indians. And like, we changed it, or they changed it out here. And no, I don't hear anybody talking about, oh man, I missed the days when we were there, they were known as the Indians. You know, they're the Cardinal now. They changed it in 1972. Yeah. Well, that's the missed opportunity for Washington, right? It's this idea that the nickname, the slur is bound up with tradition. No, the thing that's that's bound up with the tradition, it, you know, the thing that people remember fondly is a winning Mm -hmm. franchise. And so what if all those Super Bowls had come under a different name? Then people would be attached to that name. And and this is what, you know, it, it could have been like the Golden State Warriors, where they had a caricature of a Indian mascot, and nobody remembers that. This could have been ancient history, but they wouldn't allow it to be. They just dug in and dug in and dug in to the point now where everyone rightly sees this franchise 
as being <laughs> abhorrent and on the wrong side of history. That's you know what they they're reaping what they sowed here. And just just to be clear on one on one point, you know, Joel, what I meant by it's easy is that they're saying now. This just came out last week. They're saying they could change this before the 2020 season starts. What I meant by by easy is like, if they really wanted to change the name, they could have done it in a week yeah. or a month. Um, and so all this, you know, idea of like, oh, we need right. to study it. And Why don't you think they did it? Why didn't they do it now? You know, actually, that's a good point. Why haven't they just gone ahead and done it already then? It's trying to buy a little time is, is I, I think, what's happening. Right. Well, then that to me shows that they didn't come into this thinking this was a fait accompli, that this really did seem to gestate in the last couple of weeks. Because if they had been spending, like if they had read the tea leaves, even like on the day George Floyd was killed, they could have by now come up with a full marketing campaign, a full statement, and looked that they weren't being, uh, that they weren't reacting to pressure. Um, But Dan Snyder is not capable of that. Dan Snyder ultimately is not a very sophisticated business person. Um, and, you know, in in response to what you were saying, Josh, about the sort of, or, or Joel, about the, the sort of catering to white people, I mean, this is the, the sort of, whatever the percentage of Washington football fans is that clings to this name as if it's some sort of, you know, personal, deeply felt connective, you know, identity for them. That is just bullshit. That's what we tell ourselves in order to justify the continued repression, continued maintenance of these terrible, terrible symbols. I mean, it really, and we've had this conversation on numerous topics, right? It's like if people had the strength to just say this is wrong and we need to change this and educate their fan base, then it would be much, much simpler. And I think that's what's going to happen here. What's going to happen? You know, there are going to be people complaining, you know, the fans that are locked into this name will continue to bitch about the liberals winning and blah, blah, blah. Um, And ultimately, the name will change. They'll buy new gear and some small percentage of the fan base will try to, you know, cling to the old name in whatever stupid ways they can. And ultimately, they will be vanquished. They will disappear. Yeah. And I mean, we've, you know, been talking about this throughout the weekend. What keeps coming up, in addition to all that, like, none of this would matter. None of the fan thing, you know, none of the, the fan reaction, the tenor of the country right now would matter so much if the organization that Dan Snyder runs wasn't a complete mess. And I think that, like, one of our emails is like, this organization is a mess. Um, and, and I just, I just want to, for a second, I read one of the breakdowns of like all the things that have gone wrong within Dan Snyder's organization. And it said he had retained blue chip strategists such as Ari Fleischer, Julia Payne, Lanny Davis, Frank Luntz, among others. Like if you want a sense for why there has been so much resistance to a name change, there you go. This is like a who's who's list of Republican PR flunkies. You know what I mean? So like that's why another recent advisor works at a firm with a guy who was part of the Clinton administration, but was most recently giving advice to Trump on re-election strategy. That's 2020. That's a guy that Dan Snyder is leaning on right now, right? So you can understand, like, if to the extent that we talk about, you know, people, you know, deferring to angry white people, they are made up of angry white people who make their living catering to angry white people. And that is why we haven't seen so much of a, of a change. And that's why we can see why it's been so ham-handedly handled what a mouth twister right there. Ham-handedly handled, baby. I like it. I mean, Dan Snyder is going to bring in the people who tell Dan Snyder what Dan Snyder wants to hear, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, these are the people he wants around him or the ones that uh, coddle and, and affirm mm-hmm. 
his, his mm-hmm. views. But let's talk about the Cleveland Indians because in, in a lot of ways, I think this is the more interesting case. And I, I think it's easy for me to be, you know, all like, you know, they should with the with the Washington thing. You know, we've been saying this for years. They should have done this a long time ago. A lot of people have been saying that we shouldn't have any Indian names or, or mascots. We have, or just speaking for myself, I have not necessarily staked out that position for years. Like I have, I, that's not something that I have said. And so um, it's interesting to see um, that the conversation has moved to this place where it's now kind of pushed beyond, let's get rid of the obvious slurs, where it's now like kind of the mainstream view or the view from this major league franchise that, um, you know, even having the name Indians is no longer acceptable. What do you make of that, Stefan? I think that's a fine place to be. I mean, why do we need to name teams after, you know, oppressed ethnic minorities in America? But we weren't saying that, like, you know, it seems so right now, but we weren't yeah. saying that six months ago. So, so. Well, no, there were people saying that. I yeah. mean, look, there's been the fight over that cartoon caricature Chief Wahoo, um, and the Indians did get rid of it as a secondary logo for the team. I don't think this is new. Um, you know, it, they've been on the list of, of other native nicknames that, that have been, you know, there've been calls to, but come on, you guys were, you guys, were not at not the have, same it, level. Oh, I you think guys I, would not have anticipated six months ago that the Cleveland Indians would put out a statement saying we're revisiting our name right now. Oh no! The, but the, I mean, there's no way to predict anything about our world six months ago. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 right? I, I, but but I, there has been a steady drumbeat of opposition to all of these names, from the Florida State Absolutely. Seminoles to the Fighting Sioux and University of North uh, North Dakota. You know, the Cleveland Indians. Like there, there have been people, there have been activists pressing for these changes, and we a lot of people have chosen not to hear it. And I mean, I, it's the same thing. Like I just this weekend. I found out the Edmonton Eskimos. I never even thought about, like, I just thought about an Eskimo as, like, just a cartoonish, you know, caricature of whatever. I don't, you know, I never even thought of it as a Native person, right? And then I read the story where people were protesting about changing the name for the Edmonton Eskimos, and I'm like, oh, yeah, change it. Get rid of it. Like, who gives a shit? Like, why are you attached to that? And that's the same way I sort of feel about that. But there, I feel like there have been a bunch of people all along saying, oh, the Cleveland Indians thing is wrong. I just think now everybody realizes this is the moment to strike. Well, so far, the Atlanta Braves and the Kansas City Chiefs are kind of sitting this one out and twiddling their, <laughs> their thumbs and hoping the moment passes, right? I mean, uh, there certainly questions have been asked and, and raised, but, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs, they just won the, the Super Bowl and they have not released a statement yet. It has not, I, I think, gotten to the point. Maybe it will this week, maybe it will next week, maybe it won't get there, where these teams are all being pressured by their FedExes, by their fan bases um, and where it gets to the point where they have to change or by their commissioners. You know, it's if, if the Indians goes down and baseball realizes that this is a smart move and that there are plenty of great new potential nicknames out there that fans will scoop up the merch of, then it's going to happen and it should happen and push back, be damned. Finally, you know, do something that is, just right. It's not that hard to do. You know, the chief, some, some portion of the chief's fan base is going to say, well, the team was actually named for the nickname of the mayor and had nothing to do with uh, Native Americans. But all of the iconography they adopted, mascot, logo, et cetera, is. 
Um, the Braves will say it's harmless. And look, the Seminole tribe approves of Florida State using it as their nickname and mascot. Um, so there will be dodges here. And the question is how powerfully the FedExes and the leagues and fellow owners who start to see this shit come down are going to react and how strong a position they will take to, to compel teams to change their names. Yeah, and the thing that I think is important to think about, and and I'm glad you just brought it up, Stefan, is that like when you have one of these nicknames, there's all the other stuff that comes along for the ride, the associated iconography, the songs, the chants, the face paint, and it's sort of like <laughs> it's sort of like in a in a blog post that like is just like a, a super. Uh, you know, when you when you establish a, a tone in something that you write or something that you say, and all the people in the comments or in the replies that just sort of follow along and just you know want to go with the with the crowd, like uh, the, it's just a really bad blog post. All these all these teams, <laughs> they're uh, they're inviting all of the, all of this stuff that I think you know the the Indians are were trying to, and you know I thought I I, I honestly thought that they would succeed. They're saying like. We can separate out Chief Wahoo. We can separate out this icon and this caricature, and we'll be fine. We'll like you know keep the good part and get rid of the bad part. Um, but I, I think what they're finding now is that um, it, that no longer seems fine. I mean, Terry Francona, the manager of the team, said it's time to change the name. There's going to be momentum here, and there will be. This is what will happen. These things happen gradually and then suddenly. Right? Twenty years of activism and lobbying and protests outside of FedEx field led to this moment that was catalyzed by external events in America. Same thing is going to happen with some of these other teams. And just, uh, I think this will be um, maybe a little preview of our bonus segment, but Ron Rivera, the coach of uh, uh, the Washington team, a uh, person of color, um, has talked publicly about wanting to, to change the name. And I said he wants to come up with a name that honors the the heritage of Native Americans and also the military. It's like, this is not going to go. <laughs> I'm not super optimistic about no. this going in a, in a great direction. And like, why not just go in a totally different Totally if, different way, but um, you know, Joel, what were you going to say? Yeah, if you were going to start up a league today, like MLS, WNBA, whatever, some of the newer leagues, uh, NWSL, like they don't have these problems, and it's shown that like fans don't really give a shit about mascots, man. You know what I mean? Like ultimately, the games are what matter. People and if you gonna, change the mascot, will bitch for a short time, right, and right. then go watch the games. Right. So just change it. Right. But you're right. And we'll get into some of the bad and good possibilities in the bonus segment. Um, there's some really obvious ones for Cleveland and the Indians. Uh, Washington is a little more wide open. But again, because of the people that the, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, because as Rivera said in one of the Washington Post pieces over the weekend, that he and Snyder alone were coming up with names and had narrowed it to two that they really like, that doesn't bode super well. And you mentioned this, the thing about native heritage and military honor. That was in the team's statement on Friday, in which it used the name of the team like 10 times. So, hey, really moving on there. So there are, as I said in my intro, there are ways for this to go sideways, but you have to hope and feel that if Goodell puts his thumb on this. There's a possibility that Snyder 
will be talked out of doing something that will only reignite the criticism and allow this debate to go on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last week, the Colorado Rockies' Ian Desmond posted a long and heartfelt essay on Instagram about his journey to the major leagues, the racism he's experienced along the way, and everything he wants to do to make baseball more welcoming for Black players. At the end, he explained that he won't be playing this season, saying that with a pregnant wife and four young children who have lots of questions about what's going on in the world, home is where I need to be right now. The Los Angeles Dodgers' David Price announced he won't be playing either, and a bunch of NBA and WNBA players, including Avery Bradley, Victor Oladipo, DeAndre Jordan, Natasha Cloud, Renee Montgomery, and Liz Cambage, have said that they're opting out of their respective pro basketball bubbles. Stefan, different players are sitting out for different reasons, some because of health, some for family, some to focus on advocacy work, some for a combination of all of those reasons. But overall, I find this movement heartening, and I wonder what it suggests about how athletes will take on decisions about whether to play or not to play when we are not in a pandemic. Uh, I think we saw some of that even before the pandemic. You think of Maya Moore taking a break from her career to do activist work to help a guy who was imprisoned unjustly and was released. Her work paid off, and that just happened recently. So it is heartening, and it does, I think, help athletes put life into perspective and career into perspective. But at the same time, this is clearly an option that is not for everybody. There is wide unease, I think, among players um, to go into these bubbles or to play. We've seen that from players like Sean Doolittle of the Washington Nationals. There's going to be pressure to play. Some players have job security, some don't. Um, Some need the income more than others. So while I think that you know, this, seeing some players drop out sends a good message to players who have to evaluate their lives going forward. I'm not so sure that we're going to see a trend here when play resumes under normal circumstances. Yeah, I, I'm probably sound like a broken record at this point, but I always come back to this. If professional athletes with unions and collectively bargained contracts are ambivalent about playing under these circumstances— Imagine the pressure that college and high school athletes must feel. Think of all the stories we've read of all these positive tests at LSU and Clemson and Kansas State and so on and so forth. Plus, you add in all the, you know, players that are speaking up now about like sort of the, I mean, basically abusive atmospheres that a lot of them work in where they just don't have a lot of power to speak up and say what's going on. Surely those players have some concerns for any number of reasons, whether it's underlying health issues being in contact with elderly or immunocompromised relatives. And we're not hearing nearly as much about them as we are professional athletes who do have some financial security that others don't. But that's what I always sort of, I mean, if you're a player and you can decide not to play, that's great. I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing that you, you, ha- you have some degree of um, influence over your career like that. But there's so many other athletes that don't. And it just, you know, it just speaks to me that the larger irresponsibility of trying to soldier on 
in the middle of a pandemic, man. Yep, that's a great point. And looking at the NBA players and the WNBA players, I think is particularly interesting because the guys that I mentioned, Avery Bradley, Victor Oladipo, DeAndre Jordan, have all made their millions. Um, They're going to be losing salary by sitting out, but they're set for life. Their families are set for life. And they're not in a position where they're forced to choose between their livelihoods and their health and their family's health. Um, But, you know, as so often has been the case, you know, these WNB players, uh, I think, are put in that position and are making harder choices. And there are a lot of players that are choosing to sit out, whether it's for health reasons, whether it's for advocacy and, and activism, as, you know, folks like Natasha Cloud are doing. I guess in one sense, they're not making barely anything. And so what do they have to lose? But, you know, that's a, you know, I don't actually mean that. It's uh, an incredibly difficult decision. And just like what you were saying, Joel, it's a decision that has been forced on them by leagues, I think by us um, in some cases, not Joel Anderson, but by. Um, you know, I don't people, want you to play. <laughs> by, by people in the world who are excited about these games happening, who want something to watch, um, who want a distraction from all the stuff that's going on in the world. And so, um, you know, there are these, these sorts of, um, of tiers and players in a particular tier of pro athletics, of college, of high school are being put in this position um, where they have to choose. Well, the professional athletes, particularly, I mean, the window for your career is really short in most cases. It's really small. I mean, the average NFL career is what? Less than three years now, I think. Um, The pressure to play is enormous. The responsibility to play to your family and to yourself and to the people that have helped you come up. And also the desire to play. Let's not discount the fact that athletes want to play. They want to be out there. And weighing risks is part of their daily existence. I mean, it's not as if NFL players don't know that just playing the sport is incredibly dangerous to their future. Um, So you'll throw on top of that playing this insanely dangerous game in the middle of a pandemic and not knowing what the long-term health outcomes for just playing football period, but then contracting COVID as an athlete, maybe a black athlete with a higher rate of, uh, of, of susceptibility, maybe a black athlete with a higher rate of susceptibility um, and underlying conditions like sleep apnea or obesity or whatever. Um, these are really difficult decisions to make. And the leagues, I think, that are going out of their way to include the players in the deliberations and giving them the option of sitting out are the ones that are going to look better in the long run. I mean, I'm not comparing the NFL to the NWSL here, but that league did tell the players, look, you don't have to play. We will still pay you for the season. And very few players sat out. And in fact, the only notable players who sat out were three of the biggest stars of the national team. I actually uh, was DMing with Diana Matheson yesterday, a Canadian national team member. She's in her mid-30s coming off of a surgery last year, kept her out of the World Cup. And she said that she strongly considered not playing, but the way the league included players in the decision-making and the fact that she's on this team and loves playing are what swayed her to come back. She also said, I don't see how anything but a shorter format in one or two locations could work right now without being socially irresponsible. Yeah, and I mean, you know, 
you talk about like the danger. So CBS Sports, uh, I think it was Dennis Dodd, had a report a few days ago that talked about just, and this was just limited to college. And I guess, you know, I'm a college head. So that's why I'm so fixated on that. That if they played college football this season under circumstances as they presently are, which is very hard to predict out, you know, three, four months from now, but just under, you know, under these conditions with the expectations of how the, the, the virus interacts with people that as many as seven players could die, you know, just just from playing football, you know, like w- under these circumstances that we 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 risk as many as seven college football players dying. And obviously, so, I mean, we've, you, you've got to presume that there will be a similar risk for professional athletes if they wanted to do it. And I just I just like I, I just keep saying this and I'm, I'm probably not being as articulate or as thoughtful about this as I could be. But I just cannot believe that we're we're talking about this. And I mean, I think the other thing of this is that we talk about this in terms of just the athletes, like the athletes are at risk. And so we've got to protect the athletes or the athletes, you know, um, health must be, you know, prioritized above all. There are other people around these teams that are not playing. Like, I mean, there are coaches, there's uh, essential staff who's like, Dusty Baker is 71 years old. Mike D'Antoni is 69. Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll is 68 years old. They're all at a high risk of if they were to contract this virus, things could go really, really wrong for them. And so like that, it's like it's like even even if you just think outside of the game for a second, it just seems deeply stupid to do this. There's a WNBA coach, Dan Hughes, who's not going to coach because he has a greater risk at, at 65 years old. He was also diagnosed with cancer last year. There are other, are there coaches who are not going to go into the, the NBA bubble. Circling back to what I said in my intro, I think um, the reason that I kind of started the conversation with this idea that it's important for athletes that are um, wealthier and more famous to be making this decision to sit out. Um, it, it makes me kind of go back to this normalization of paternity leave that we've had in um, mm-hmm. pro sports um, only very recently. Um, this idea that it's not only okay, but it, that it's actually normal, um, verging on good for players to <laughs> see the, the birth of their children. And we've seen Gordon Hayward talking about how he'll leave the bubble if um, you know, his wife gives birth and the Celtics are still in playoff consideration. But I just think, you know, Ian Desmond and Avery Bradley, guys who, you know, might have the opportunity to opt out financially that other other people don't. But anything that makes it seem more normal and acceptable to mm-hmm. contextualize sports in such a way that, like, your life and your family and your health are more important. I think that's good. That has a so, there's a social good attached to that. Um, that message Absolutely. is heard, mm-hmm. um, and it it will kind of carry into other kind of walks of life. It'll make it more acceptable for other players to do it, and maybe other people in their like work and professions will see like an athlete doing it and say, maybe my concerns about this are more acceptable. Even in something as narrow as the pandemic, it's a positive thing. I mean, we've seen Mike Trout the best player in baseball, um, not only say that he's concerned about being in the non-bubble of Major League Baseball for the next few months, he's got a wife who is pregnant, um, he is 
speaking out and using this platform to basically educate fans about the risks that not only players, but the entire teams and that the entire process exposes. And he was photographed over the weekend working out in a mask. That's enormously important as a message to the general public. And sure, some people might just look, oh, like, you know, look at that guy showboating, virtue signaling, wearing a mask. He's <laughs> an athlete. He's flipping. He He's hitting a home run and flipping the mask. Yeah. Flipping the mask. I mean, Zion may have been showboating when he had his mask on in his in the workout. So, to be honest, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> but regardless of how people interpret that, some people are going to see that and understand that there will be a synaptic connection, a firing that says that. Huh, look, if Mike Trout can wear this, you know, wear a mask while he's running the bases, I can wear one when I go to the grocery store. Not super optimistic that'll be widely accepted, but someone might see that and interpret it that way. I have a question for you, Joel. Um, this kind of reminds me of the conversation we had a while back about the move to add games to the NFL season mm. and the tension mm -hmm. there around um, it'll increase risk of of short-term and long-term debilitating injury for players. But um, in this universe, when guys are not having very long careers, it also increases earning opportunities for guys who are on the fringes and that that could potentially be life-changing in a positive way to get this kind of money. And so how do you think about that question around, um, let's just use baseball as, as an example. The talking point for the union is like, tell us where and when. They They've said publicly that they want to play. They want this money that will be just be lost if there's no season. Minor league baseball has already been canceled. And so those guys are going to be really struggling. Oh, yeah. And so um, it's going to be beneficial for a, a certain group of players to get um, the service time, to get the, the money um, that will come from that. And so how do you balance that? Like if you were in the players union, if you're the head of the players union or just a member, that this will actually be good for some people in the membership while it might be overall kind of detrimental to society or just, or just to, um, a, you know, a certain other group. Yeah. I mean, I totally understand that tension, right? That, um, you know, there are a lot of people whose livelihoods are on the line here and can't afford to miss too many paychecks. I mean, but that is a problem. There's also that the stadium staff and people who will be yeah. har mm -hmm. harmed by not having games. Yeah, I mean, that is an issue that is widely shared throughout America. Like, we're all sort of going through, like, right now, just here at our company, we are going through a tremendous financial difficulty, and we're having to make, you know, concessions to that. And so, you know, I'm, it far be it for me to tell people, you know, don't play if they want to play and there's an opportunity to play, because I totally understand that. I mean... Just on a base level as an athlete, like you only get so many game days in the course of your life. Yeah. And they're still going to be training. Like they're still going to be working out and doing everything. Like the way they live their lives is not going to change. The only thing that's going to be missing is the games and the paycheck. So I totally understand why they want to get back out there. But I think as a society, like this is a sacrifice that we need to be willing to make. But the problem is that our government has not stepped up to, to honor our sacrifice and to honor their sacrifice. It would probably be easier if there was some sort of mechanism where people got paid and their needs were met and, you know, we could get through this and everybody would be willing to sacrifice for a very short amount of time, wear their mask, socially isolate themselves, and then we could have games and then people, you know, things could get back to going. But like what is happening right now is a symptom of a broken society. And so when that happens and when people's lives are at risk, 
I think the greater good is for us to say, things are so bad, we need to stop. Yeah, tell that to the 24-year-old, you know, who's on the free agent bubble in the NBA. You know, Mm -hmm. Victor Oladipo goes down, and that's my job. That's my job. This is my chance to have a career um, Mm -hmm. if I can get signed and do something during this bubble window. And I'm going to keep my fingers crossed, and I'm going to believe that I am young and healthy and that the team and the league are doing everything to safeguard my health. And if I should contract the, the virus, that I'll be cared for well. So athletes are always willing to take risks and it really is incumbent. And we're all bad at assessing risk, all of us, especially when we're young and feel like we're bulletproof. Right. And then the people who are in charge of ultimately making the decisions on how much risk is acceptable have this tremendous financial interest in getting everybody, everything back to the way it was. You know, there was this kind of brief moment when we were all talking about the funny tweet from Patrick Beverly about if LeBron wants to play, we're going to play, right? Yeah. But it's not to put, it, it's not LeBron's fault that this is happening, but, you know, Mike Trout is Mike Trout. I mean, he's not LeBron James. Um, and, and so what he says carries some weight, but in our broader kind of culture and society, it's like, it's going to resonate with his peers and with baseball fans, but not with the world. And so, you know, just imagine an alternate universe in which LeBron James said, yeah, this is not a good idea. We're not going to do this. But, you know, the the point I'm making is like you have guys like Avery Bradley, you have guys like Ian Desmond, but at the top of these sports with the guys who are most secure, most famous, most rich, most talented, you aren't, you're seeing the vast, vast majority of them still say, we want to play, we want to do this. And so that's important. Right. There hasn't, there have been no statement opt-outs yet from huge influential superstars. I mean, well, Kyrie, I mean, Kyrie wasn't yeah, going to play anyway. Yeah, right. I, but you know, I mean, that's, that's sort of, I mean, Kyrie yeah, thinks that he's, Kyrie thinks he made a huge statement. We could, we could, beg, we could <laughs> beg to differ on that. I mean, you, you, I think arguably the biggest athletes, star athletes that are not playing in their leagues are the three women in the, in soccer, mm-hmm. Kristen Press, Tobin Heath and Megan Rapino, um, but they're not going to move the cultural needle the way LeBron would, obviously. So what you're seeing is, as we talked about at the beginning of the segment, are players who are in that comfortable upper middle tier. You know, Wilson Chandler's made his money. DeMarcus Cousins has made his money. Trevor Ariza's made his money. Um, they have the, the 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 flexibility to be able to make this decision um, to to not come back and not really risk anything to their careers if they don't. Yeah, if they do. I just can't believe. Again, why does anybody want to see this? I mean, there's not going to be fans <laughs> there. Like it just, I you know, I. I get, I, I get like maybe the curiosity factor. You weren't watching the, the basketball out. tournament on ESPN over the weekend. Oh, that was on. You know, people kept tweeting about that, and I was like, "There's something on." I had no idea. I did, I did not know that golf. That was golf was tournament. on. I'm watching a lot of Premier League soccer. Oh man, yeah. yeah. I mean, the women's soccer uh, highlights were. You know, there was a good back heel. Like, fit, like Twitter is becoming like a place for sports highlights again. Like people, people want to watch this stuff, Joel. Man, I was watching the Jeffrey Epstein documentary. This week, so sorry. <laughs> okay round two name something that's not boring laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I wanted to let you know that in this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, as discussed earlier, we're going to talk about possible nicknames for the Washington NFL team. They need our help. We're more than happy to provide it. If you want to hear those suggestions, you have to get Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangoutplus. That's slate.com slash hangoutplus. Even if we don't have football this fall, and man, it sure doesn't seem like we will, ESPN still has a lot of programming slots to fill, which is why ESPN will relaunch the show NFL Live starting in August. The show will feature the likes of former NFL stars Keyshawn Johnson, Dan Orlovsky, and Marcus Spears. But among those stars is a star in her own right, Mina Kimes. In fact, I looked it up. Mina has nearly 120,000 more Twitter followers than her former football playing co-host combined. Did you know that, Mina? I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, see? And it's an obvious understatement to say Mina, a Yale grad and a business reporter by trade, took a non-traditional route to the seat next to Keyshawn Johnson. Uh, since being at ESPN, she's been an award-winning magazine writer and a regular panelist on Around the Horn and Highly Questionable. Plus, she's a host for her own football podcast with her dog, Lenny, who I'll be addressing later, <laughs> and ESPN Daily. Um, but a very strong case can be made that she owes her incredibly successful career to our own Josh, who asked her to write for Slate in 2014 about her love for the Seattle Seahawks. So let us consider this her hero's welcome home. Mina, do you... A, think we'll have football this fall. B, really love football this much to dedicate your career to it like this. Well, C, first, I got I to gotta correct the record here. <laughs> Josh didn't commission the piece. I wrote it on my personal Tumblr, and he asked to republish it. So, oh. yeah, I, you know, I, I don't want to call him a bandwagon editor or anything like that. but um, Recognize talent when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> I do think probably the piece got a lot more eyeballs on Slate than minakimes.tumblr.com. I'll give you that, Josh. Good plug, though, for the Tumblr. <laughs> Thank you. Is it still up? Is it still active? <laughs> uh, I think I shut it down, actually. But yeah, no, Josh is like the Bill Belichick, you know, finding the undrafted mm-hmm. quarterback or, or the seventh round draft pick, I suppose. Yes, I am comparing myself to Tom Brady. That's how much I love football. That's how much I hope we have football, man. It feels weird to talk about any sports happening in the fall or at any point right now uh, with any degree of certainty. But uh, I sure hope we get NFL. I guess that's predicated on a much more important dream, which is that I sure hope our country is in a place where we can have the NFL. So Mina, how do you think about your position on this panel show and the fact that you are uh, an analyst? I mean, it's very you know cool. Like There are these retired players. That's typically where we get our national supply of uh, football analysts is from the sidelines of uh, uh, football games. So you know, I think it's it's great that um, we're going to be able to watch you in this role. Um, and do you think it's important to, you know, be in this position? Like, do you think it's like a, a milestone kind of thing? God, love talking about myself and, and milestones and my own importance, Josh. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited about it because I just love talking about football. I love um, and analyzing the game, right, which is important to this role rather than being a host or even a reporter, um, actually just breaking down matchups and teams and players is what I love most in the world. It's what I do in my football show, the Minicom show featuring Lenny. So the chance to do that all the time is an absolute dream and a fantasy. Um, It's not something 
I thought I would ever do. Certainly not when you plucked me from obscurity, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Belichick of editors. Uh, and I guess I do like the idea that, you know, my presence on the television screen next to Keyshawn, Marcus, Stan, maybe will make it a little bit easier for someone else to have that dream. But really, we're not talking about the most important thing. Um, I guess my, the the greatest significance uh, of me in turn representation being there, which is uh, it's a victory for small people, man. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Dan. Dude is like eight feet tall. Marcus is a human giant. Keyshawn is huge as well. I'm topping out at five, six. You know, maybe I, I, a lady doesn't tell, but I'm a, I'm like maybe one third the size of a Marcus Spears. Uh, so we're, <laughs> we're just really not talking about that kind of representation enough because that's huge, I think, for the small community. Congratulations as a small person who also stood next to large people for a while. It can be intimidating. I'm just warning you. I know you've been in their presence before, yeah. but yeah, they are uh, the, the, the physical intimidation factor that you have already shown the ability to overcome is very impressive, Mina. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us about your growing into the role of being an analyst. I mean, how much of a difference is it from just being a fan who talked about the Seahawks and the rest of the NFL to, I don't know, do you feel pressured to like watch the all 22 and be able to sort of sling lingo and play formations and playbook stuff with these other, with these former NFL players? Or is that already something that you've been doing? It is already something I've been doing. It's all I do. Short answer. All I do in my free time is study and take notes and go back and watch, um, you know, coaches state from last year, uh, talk to people who are smarter than me about concepts. I, I think sometimes people don't understand the amount of my football pro- podcast is really goofy, right? And we're doing division previews now and it's co-hosted by a dog and his face is on the logo, but a single division preview, I have about 45 pages of notes that go into it. And I spend all week going back, looking at the depth charts, pulling statistics, thinking through that kind of thing. So, you know, that that's the sort of work that goes into this. It is work that I really enjoy. I mean, I can't tell you how exciting it is when you're kind of pulling numbers on a player and you, God, this sounds so pathetic. And you come across a statistic that suddenly you're like, whoa, wait, well, you mean to tell me the Seahawks defense uh, was actually better at defending the pass and base? What? I have to tell everybody this information immediately. That's how I feel. So, um, you know, the chance to do that on TV is crazy. Why isn't this boring to you? Because, I mean, it's somebody that, you know, I, you know, I played football in high school and college briefly. And like, that was the most boring part. Yeah, I had, I had a little bit of a career. I have a seven yards <laughs> carry in high school, but we don't have to talk about it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but I mean, like, that was the most boring part. Like, I don't understand why this is interesting to you. Like, just on a base level, because like watching film is like one of the most boring, droning things that any human can do. And like, you seem to eat that up. I think it kind of stems from the same aspect of just being a reporter that I liked so much, which is I find the world a lot more interesting when you kind of see it like Neo in the Matrix, right? I find football a lot more fun. And this is, I realize this is not true of everyone, but I find all sports, but I just being you know, football here a lot more entertaining when I understand why things are happening and what they mean. And mm-hmm the more time I can spend sort of marinating in that information and thinking about it, the more I actually enjoy watching the game. It's fun, man. It's fun to watch things when you actually understand them and kind of pick them apart and see the seams. I don't know. I I think it's fun. Was there a light bulb moment for you at all when you just, when like, you know, when some of this 
acquired football knowledge, right? Because you didn't grow up with it, but like this, this, yeah. this acquired knowledge. Like, it was there a moment when it came together for you when you're just like, oh, I'm watching this. Oh, and I understand the mesh point or something like that. You know, well, for me, a big thing. I, I tell this a lot to people when I'm sort of explaining the game to maybe people who haven't thought about it on that, who just kind of enjoy it as a casual fan. But once you just start realizing it's about just trying to create numbers and size advantages at various points on the field, and then you just kind of watch and it really does feel like that weird, beautiful mind type moment where you're suddenly just looking and you're like, oh, that's, there are three guys there and four guys there. Or, oh, that's, that's a, that's a linebacker on a wide receiver and he's a lot faster than him. And then once you kind of start seeing it like that, it gets really exciting. I think it, it gets really beautiful because that's what, like we talk, you know, my favorite coach right now is Kyle Shanahan. And all we do is think about, okay, why is he so good? Why is, why does this running back averaging seven yards a carry? Well, it's because Kyle Shanahan has like masterminded these matchups, right? And it created this like split second of confusion and created this advantage here. And once you start seeing that, it's really exciting. So the main conversations around the NFL right now um, are the same kinds of conversations we're having about everything, about are they going to play? Should they play? Around how they're responding to um, the social justice pro- protests. We did a segment about Washington and potentially changing the name. Um, do you feel like all the stuff around the kind of guts of the game and how the game is played, does that feel like a thing that like we're going to be excited about talking about that in August or September? Um, it just feels, I mean, all of this, it, ju- it just feels like the conversation that we're having now just feels like it's on a faraway fantasy land to me right now and maybe it's like fun to to live in that universe but it just it just doesn't feel like super important as we're as we're sitting here the question of whether to play or whether or not we'll be having these conversations about racial justice vis-a-vis football i guess just the question of like the mesh point and you know (laughs) tampa 2 and and all yeah and all this stuff i mean like no i I get that completely I'm, i'm i'm interested in what you have to say now on like highly questionable about like these kind of like macro issues about yeah. the world that we're, that we're living in. And yet there's like a huge audience and people are hungry for the like X's and O's stuff too, because like that's an escape for people. I mean, it's just like a really hard balance. Yeah, no, I, right I, I think that's a great question. I was so, when the Cam Newton news broke to the Patriots, I was so thrilled for like four days just thinking talking about what that offense would look like right like what is josh mcdaniel's gonna do with cam newton are they gonna run the triple option is he gonna borrow from the 2018 north turner offense all that stuff (laughs) and but then at the same time of course there's this like weird not weird but very real um much more foundational question underlying all of this is any of this actually going to happen, right? And, and then you, you start wondering, am I even delusional to be asking this second level question when we haven't even gotten past the first? I think about that. I spent all weekend um, preparing the NFC West, right? Uh, yesterday I finished uh, studying the Rams and and I, I think I tweeted something like, oh, man, the NFC West is crazy. This is the best division of football. <laughs> and somebody wrote, dude, we're not going to have football. And I get, th- I, I get that. But, you know, and, and sometimes it does feel a little bit like kind of plug, putting your head down and just plowing forward in the face of like, you know, the absolute catastrophe unfolding around us. Um, but we have to do what we got to do to get by. And I don't mean that's putting your head down because I keep my head up, as you said, in various platforms. We are talking about the public health issue. We are talking about 
um, what's happening with the protests and sports and how it's affecting these teams. And we are talking about this very, very real possibility that none of these sports will happen. But I think we can have these two conversations at the same time. I think people crave it, frankly. I know I crave it, judging by my reaction to the Cam Newton thing. And you can call it delusional and you can call it irresponsible. I think, you know, it is possible to hope and think and want it to happen. Um, but I got I will say it, it is a little bit, I know there's a bit of exhaustion amongst sports fans not hearing, you know, just hearing every day, okay, this is probably not going to happen. And I, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm, maybe I sound a little bit wishy-washy, but I'm just being honest. That's how I feel. Like I, I do want to have both of those conversations. Well, I wonder if you're going to have to have them simultaneously when right. we get going too, and whether that'll change the sort of nature of the conversation that a show like NFL Live has and how much, you know, you push for that to happen. Something that occurred to me with, with these positive tests is they come in, right? And for baseball, they're not even getting the test, which is bananas. Is if, if this happens during the season, it's going to dramatically affect games and betting and fantasy and all that weird shit, right? Like, oh my God, imagine if a Philip Rivers, I, I read somewhere, was on a call this morning, like a union call, and raised the question what if a quarterback tests positive before the Super Bowl? Like, what are you going to do? You know, are, are you really going to sit a guy? Um, and they said yes, unless he can get two negative tests or something. Um, well, it's similar all, to God the question you, of like, what would happen if a quarterback gets a concussion before the Super Bowl? I mean, we've we've had to you know deal with these these questions. Uh, you know, that that's a, a similar kind of framework. And there's a similar, I think, response to a lot of this, which is, well, these athletes are accepting the risk, right? This is a decision that they've made. The difference, of course, is that a concussion can't cause other concussions in other people. So, to go back to your question. We are going to have to talk about this as it happens, and that's going to be really strange. It's like it's foreign territory. Like it already is challenging territory. I think discussing real health and social issues as we talk about sports, and some shows and programs have done a better job of integrating those discussions. I think you guys do a terrific job. I hope to bring that to you know the NFL show. But this is this is like a new level of that that none of us really know how to do. I mean, don't you think this is kind of a really interesting time where the NFL could just blow shit up and try different things? Like, I think about how the NBA is basically organizing like a round-robin tournament, right? And so now you hear players talking about, oh, we don't want to play preseason anymore and maybe not do 11-on-11 and practice anymore. Like, don't you think that, like, in addition to the idea that maybe we should not even be talking about having football in the first place, but if we're going to have football, isn't there an opportunity to just do some cool unusual shit that like we have not seen before in terms of like structuring the league and playing games and all that stuff. I think the problem is with the NFL, most of the cool, unusual things like aren't don't pertain to schedule, you know, Mm. and most of the things like when we talk about other sports going straight to the playoffs or maybe, um, you know, I don't know, only playing in one division or region or going to Canada, which frankly, like every sport should probably do at this point. Um, Canada doesn't want every sport to come. So yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, (laughs) I get it, guys. But I think with football, there just aren't that many. Like I would say like you're seeing little things at the margins, like drastically expanding practice squads, having more active, like things that uh, teams have wanted to do anyway. But I don't think any major changes are in the cards um, just because most of them aren't things that the teams actually want Hmm. or players. Why haven't we heard about any NFL players saying they're going to opt out? Is that because we're just too far from the beginning of the season? Or is there something actually about the NFL and kind of the top-down way in which these teams are run that's going to make it less likely for um, 
you know, uh, a guy like, you know, like what we've seen with uh, Avery Bradley or, or something like that. Yeah. I think it's a mix of things. I think, um, one, you're right. A lot of it is just calendar and schedule. And I think as we get closer, it might happen more. Um, but it's not happening, or I think it'll happen less for the same reason that an NFL strike is not likely to happen. Or players, we always criticize the union when so much of their lack of power can be attributed to structural reasons, right? Because these players' careers are so short, most of them cannot afford to miss a season. Most of them cannot afford to opt out. I mean, you know, these basketball players and baseball players, a lot of them, the ones who are opting out financially, it makes sense. doesn't make, you know, an easier decision by any means. Or, uh, frankly, you know what? It does make it an easier decision. Uh, really, like you think an NFL running back, for example, is going to opt out of a season and a, a year of pay when median careers are like, you know, barely over three years, not a chance. And it's not only that the careers are short, but it's that you are forgotten when you are gone in the NFL. The risk of just not being brought back for another chance after you've been, you know, disloyal to the team by not showing up, even though you're healthy and you've tested negative, um, probably would not be looked on as uh, favorably as they would in other sports necessarily. I mean, that's just the culture of the NFL, the patriarchal structure of these teams. So where should the, you know, the, the Washington team name is going down the tubes. That can only mean that uh, Colin Kaepernick will be signed. Where should he play? Uh, I've been saying Tennessee needs him the most because ba- basically he should play for a good team that has an entrenched quarterback that needs a veteran backup. That makes the most sense right now. So you're looking at your Pittsburghs, your Houstons, your Kansas cities. But when I was doing this, you know, uh, head down, plowing forward exercise of doing division previews, I was shocked to see that Tennessee, which has a quarterback in Ryan Tannehill, who's had some pretty devastating injuries, didn't have a veteran backup. His backup is a seventh round draft pick who was cut by the Bengals in 2018. So that struck me as a team that could really use Colin Kaepernick. And, and that seems to me to be the appropriate role for him at this point. So this is in salute to our morning roast homies, you know, Clinton Yates, Dominic Foxworth. They used to have me on every Sunday to do the one got to go. And Mina mentioned as a condition of her coming on here, she wanted me to do a one got to go for her. So Mina, one got to go. Okay. These are Hall of Famers here. All right. Oh, Lord. Barry Sanders, Jerry Rice, Lawrence Taylor, Deion Sanders. This is cruel. Honestly, <laughs> this is your job now. So I'm sure this is going to come up on NFL Live at some point. So <laughs> this is a very like kind of NFL analyst kind of question. This yeah. is like, uh, what's your Mount Rushmore, Mina? Yeah. Who are you kicking off. <laughs> yeah, it's, Mount, right. it's Mount Rushmore. Week I hate this. Up. I hate. I hate uh-huh. this so much. I hate this. Okay, it was Sanders, Rice, LT, and Dion. Yeah. yeah. I gotta go, Barry, and I hate. I hate it. Wow. 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 So Shocking. I thought that I thought that you oh, were interested in representation of the small. What happened? <laughs> what happened to being the like? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I hate running backs more, man. I'm, I, I'm a nerd <sighs> through and through. I love Barry Sanders. I I, I do, but uh, uh, man, I can't cut. I can't cut Jerry. I can't cut Dion. You can cut Dion. Who would you oh, cut? You can cut Dion. You can cut, cut Dion. Dion. Cut Dion. When Dion, when, when Dion played, it, there was a legitimate debate as to whether or not he was even the best quarterback yeah, but, but, in the league. Right. I see. I'm looking at Dion as more than football, though. Maybe that's my mistake. You're looking at him as an educator for the schools that he ran. I'm looking at him as as a you know figurehead. You, what do they always say about the Hall of Fame? You can't t- if you can't tell the history of the NFL without this player. <laughs> 
It's like the Eli Manning justification, right? Uh, this is like kind of a rings argument, too. You're, you're. I know. Yeah, I hate. Why point. did I? I don't know. I just love Dion Swag. He's the swaggiest player ever, man. I, mm. Oh, yeah. that's tough. I mean, I think the thing is, we all agreed that Jerry Rice and Lawrence Taylor can't go. So, right. That's important. No, I think that, uh, I think that Dion is the right answer. I'm, I'm glad that all right-thinking uh, hang-up panelists. I mean, how, that, really? <laughs> In Mina's defense, how can you cut a 263 hitter? From the Football Hall of Fame. There you go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Make sure to check out Mina as a recent fan of hers pointed out her skinny arms on NFL Live and her podcast, The Mina Kimes Show with Lenny, that terrible slow dog, and all the other ESPN programming they liberally sprinkle her on. Thank you, Mina, for joining us today. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for Afterballs and just kind of digging a little bit deeper into my responsibility for Mina Kimes' explosive and uh, enormous media stardom. Um, This story that she wrote that was republished on Slate in 2014, the lead of which reads, I remember when things got weird. I was 15 and my father was teaching me how to drive. We lived in Arizona where the road stretches wide as football fields and everybody calls cars trucks. I had inherited a 1995 Dodge Caravan, an ugly green box that smelled like shin guards. It was my second time driving with a a permit. So my father was there, needling me every few minutes, but the angle of my mirror and the speed at which I braked. So just kind of enticing you a little bit. You have to read the rest to uh, learn more about Mina's love for the Seattle Seahawks. And it's a great story about her and her dad. But that 1995 Dodge Caravan. That is what we're here to honor today. The talisman of, uh, of, of Mina Kimes' life. Stefan, what is your 1995 Dodge Caravan? I spent part of the weekend going down various newspaper database rabbit holes about George Preston Marshall. One of my discoveries was that he showed up occasionally in the syndicated column of Damon Runyon, one of the most famous sports writers of the Times. The first mention I found was in October 1929, one day before the Black Monday stock market crash. Runyon described the 33-year-old Marshall as a Richie Rich who had prospered from a chain of laundries and briefly owned a basketball team called the Washington Palace Five. Over the years, Runyon labeled Marshall the big wet wash man, the big laundry man, and the only surviving boulevardier in Washington whose real racket is crushing the buttons on the lingerie of the Washingtonians. In a 1932 column of invented dialogue and details, Runyon had Marshall boasting about his car, his chauffeur, his stores, his doorman, and his apartment inlaid with mother of pearl with 18-carat gold furniture trimmed with Burma rubies. Runyon portrayed Marshall as a wealthy blowhard, but conceded that he had the money to spend on the new football franchise he had just acquired, the Boston Braves. In 1933, after Marshall renamed the team, Runyon started a column like this. Professional football, said Mr. George Marshall, is in... 
It's infancy, I completed. Yes, said Mr. Marshall. How did you know? I've heard you mention it 900,000 times. But Runyon believed in the future of the pro game. It was far better than college because it focused on offense and opened out the forward pass, prettiest of all football plays. I used to hear folks say a couple of years ago that professional football wouldn't go, Runyon wrote in 1933. Well, I am told that one club owner took down 80000 for profit in his club last year, and another 60000 If this gets noised about, we'll have big businessmen looking for franchises. In 20 years, Runyon predicted, the financial figures on the first professional football World Series will probably amuse the sports writers no little. One problem, though, was that pro football was playing in baseball yards, which are not well adapted to football, Runyon said, and cost teams a large percentage of gate receipts in rent. In 1953, though, they might instead be playing in one of Mr. George Marshall's celebrated all-weather stadiums. It turns out that Marshall and a D.C. architect named Jules de Sieber applied for a patent for an all-weather stadium, capital A, capital W, capital S. I found the patent online. The stadium would have a rolling roof that would open and close with an electric motor. It could be used for any and all sports with the exception of baseball. It would even have a swimming pool beneath the surface. Runyon was impressed. I mean this, he wrote, probably because he had spent so much ink making fun of Marshall. I believe that Mr. Marshall has a great idea. The Oval Stadium would seat 62,000 for football, 72,000 for hockey, and 77,000 for boxing or wrestling. But the sport Mr. Marshall has in mind above all others is football, Runyon wrote. He believes the stadium will especially solve the weather problem for professional football and make it the greatest of all sports in the matter of gate receipts. According to Runyon, some very distinguished New Yorkers were interested in building the stadium in Manhattan. The project reportedly was set to go when principal financial backer General Motors backed out. In a few years, Runyon would go from boosting Marshall's idea to mocking his grandiose vision. In those days, Runyon wrote in 1940, if George Preston Marshall had ever fallen in the river, he would have been carried to the bottom by the weight of the architect's plans that he always lugged around with him. In conclusion, George Preston Marshall, reviled segregationist, foppish egomaniac, domed stadium visionary. Football's weather problem. That's great. Football uh, didn't have a weather problem. Football's yeah, weather I problem mean, is that they play indoors. They should always play in the weather. I, that, I mean, that's what that's what people say. Yeah, but credit credit to George Marshall, Dome yeah. Stadium, visionary, visionary. Clearly, Josh, what's your 1995 Dodge Caravan? As you may know, I'm currently working on season four of the podcast series Slow Burn. It is about David Duke's rise in Louisiana took place when I was a kid in the late 80s and early 90s. In the first episode, I talked about seeing Duke working the crowd at LSU's Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge. It's a thing I remember very distinctly, and I remember finding it incredibly disturbing, especially given that a lot of the people at Tiger Stadium seemed to really like the guy. Then in the second episode, uh, that started with Collis Temple Jr., the first black basketball player at LSU, whose time on campus coincided with Duke's, and who gave us a first-person account of Duke's racist and anti-Semitic speechifying at LSU's Free Speech Alley. I say all this to demonstrate to you that I am not at all shy about smuggling LSU sports content 
into this ostensibly non-sports-based podcast, but even I have my limits, or do I? I'm going to talk about an LSU thing that I am not putting in slow burn, but I am putting it here, so I'm not sure where that leaves us. You're allowed to smuggle sports content into a sports podcast. Thank you. We got a bunch of tapes for slow burn from a public radio reporter named Gary Cavino, who did a two-part audio documentary on Duke in 1991. Um, That was the year that the ex-Klansman slash neo-Nazi nearly became governor of Louisiana. On one of those tapes is a conversation Duke had with a talk radio host about some uh, campaign fundraiser he was hosting. There was one bit of chatter on that conversation that caught my attention. I think Curley is going to give a lot of people some some tooling people nightmares. I think Curley is going to be a good coach for LSU. There you go, losing more votes. No, actually, he's a good coach. Yeah. The Curley that David Duke was talking about there is Curley Holman, who LSU had just hired from the University of Southern Mississippi. Curley was not, in fact, a good coach. He would go 16 and 28 in four years at LSU, leading his team to an incredible zero bowl bowl games. Zero. And a bunch of ignominious defeats. So David Duke, in addition to being wrong about literally everything, is wrong on knowing which football coaches will be good. But Curly Holman was not just bad at coaching football. In advance of an LSU home game against the number one team in the nation in October of 91, that was in the midst of the governor's race, Hallman was asked what he thought about David Duke. His answer, I'm a football coach, not a politician. I'm worried about Florida State. LSU blew a 13 to nothing lead, lost to Florida State 27 to 16. Spoiler alert, David Duke lost the governor's race. So Curly Hallman was useless on all counts. Thanks for nothing, Curly. That, my friends, is a comprehensive preview of what you will not be hearing in the upcoming weeks. On Slow Burn Season 4, David Duke's thoughts on Curly Hallman and my thoughts on David Duke's thoughts on Curly Hallman. Although I cannot and will not promise, Joel and Stefan, that there will be no more LSU sports content on Slow Burn. So stay tuned. More Carlos Temple. More Carlos Temple. Love Carlos Temple. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might perhaps want even more Hang Up and Listen. In our bonus segment this week, we're going to suggest some new names for the Washington NFL team. Senators, everyone hates the Senate. Why the fuck would you want to name your team the Senators today? I mean, ineffectual old white dudes. I mean, seriously. How about the reps then? How about the reps? Don't you? I, th- I feel like the reps would be pretty cool. It's got a hipper sounding, you know, cadence to it, doesn't it? Uh, the Washington taxation without representation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, see? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's on there too. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 